How do you know you can trust your eyes and what you've read? What makes you sure you can believe your ears and what you've been told? How many times have you trusted someone or believed in something, only to have that trust betrayed and your belief proven futile? How do you know that the story of Jesus isn't a myth, a lie, or just some fairy tale designed to tickle your ears? There was a man who did the research, interviewed eyewitnesses, and verified the claims. This man was educated and honest, and his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good. You guys sound like you are. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 35. This is our certainty in a world of doubt teaching series, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to talk about doubt this morning. Any ladies with the guys up on the mountain there, men's retreat? Men's retreat? Okay. Just a few of you here. Do you miss them? Be careful. We got the camera on you right now. We got the camera. You want them to come back? Yeah, okay. If they have to. Hey, give, uh, pray for them. They'll be back today. And I know that they're having a fantastic time. There's a bunch of them up there. And so uh, good to have you with us here today. Um, so take a look at your sermon notes out. Doubt, we're talking about doubt. Doubt can make you or break you, really depending on how you respond to your doubt. And uh, on your notes there, a faith that has not been challenged by doubts, a faith that has not been challenged by doubts is a naive faith that will be defenseless against suffering and smart skeptics. So your, your faith needs to be challenged by doubts. Doubt can be a very good thing. In fact, a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if they carelessly go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe what they believe. So you need to not only know what you believe, but you need to know why you believe what you believe. Does that make sense? You've got to, you've got to. Otherwise, uh, you're gonna be taken out. In fact, neglect the why, and you'll drift from the what. And in fact, 80% of our evangelical kids lose their faith in college. Did you know that? That's horrible tragedy. And, and it's because we're raising up a whole generation of kids that don't, not only do they not know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe what they believe. We're pretty intentional here at Desert Breeze. I want you to know what you believe, but I, I want you to also know why you believe what you believe. But even beyond that, your theology must become doxology before it will become soul-satisfying, life-liberating, psychology, uh, and you need that. That's the only way that it will ultimately transform your life. And so, what is doubt? That's what we're looking at this morning. What is doubt? Why do we doubt? So we're gonna get at the root of this doubt, and then how do we overcome doubt? That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray, and then we'll read this text and unpack these notes. God, we, are, we love you. We love being here, and, and Father, we know that doubt can be so debilitating. It can cripple our worship, steal our joy, rob us of, of the passion to serve you, and it can even lead us to defect from you. And as James 1.6 says, the doubt can cause us to be like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But we know that faith comes from hearing your word. Your word is alive and powerful. It is your active presence in our lives. And so may our struggle with doubt drive us deeper into your word, showing us more clearly not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe, giving us an unwavering, stable, strong faith in the face of suffering and skeptics for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. So take a look at this text. This is really a wonderful text. And so we, two weeks ago, we took a break from it last weekend, Easter weekend, and so uh, two weekends ago, we said that chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, give, define faith for us. It was the definition of faith. 
Jesus heals a centurion's servant. And then verses 11 all the way to verse 17, we saw the object of our faith. Jesus raises a widow's son. And now we come to the struggle with faith, this idea of doubt. Verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. What things did they report? Well, Jesus heals the centurion's servant, and then Jesus raises a widow's son. That's what they're reporting to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, this is John the Baptist, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Don't you think that that's kind of peculiar? Because John the Baptist, where is John the Baptist right now? He's in jail. He's in prison, isn't he? And it's not looking so good for him. And we'll talk more about that, but it's not looking so good for him. So, so there's some doubt happening in his life. And by the way, isn't John the Baptist the one that pointed to Jesus and said, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And so, so this is the guy that said those and made those pretty profound statements, and yet he's saying this. He's struggling. There's a struggle going on. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men who had come to him they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the, the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he healed many people of, of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Let's check this out. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's a peculiar beatitude, isn't it? So total fulfillment, complete well-being is the one who is not offended by me. See, in that, he, what he's showing us, he's, he's, Jesus is um, he's the epitome of the gospel. Basically, he's a demonstration and a proclamation of the gospel. Of, of who he is and why he came to this earth, and you see that in those verses. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So lest you think John is a wimp and weak in his struggle with doubt, listen to what Jesus says. What, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Talking about John when he's talking to the people. He says, what did you think you were gonna see when you saw John? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. So now he's gonna say, hey, listen, John is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In fact, he's the forerunner of yours truly, me, Jesus. That's what he's saying. So he's just saying, lest you think he's a wimp and weak in his faith. No, he's, he's pretty strong in his faith here. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he and then verse 29, you're going to see some faith. You're going to see belief. And then verse 30, you'll see unbelief. So when all the people heard this, the, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So there's unbelief. But notice what Jesus, he continues to, to say here, verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge. You did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say that he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord to us. Okay, woo, there's some heavy stuff here. I think it's good, I, I'm, I love meditating on this and reflecting on it this last week. So here's the first question we're answering. What is doubt? 
Get your notes, first fill in the blank. You can have strong faith and still have doubts. That's what John the Baptist is showing us. I mean, you can see that. It's pretty clear. Luke 3.16, in the Gospel of Luke, we saw back chapter 3, verse 16. It was John the Baptist that looked at Jesus and said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. In John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, John the Baptist said about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verses 18 and 19 of this chapter, are you the one? Are you confused, John? What's going on? And then in verses 24 through 28, Jesus says, John isn't swayed by uh, popular opinion. That's what he means when he says in verse 24, a reed shaken in the wind. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken in the wind? Are you kidding me? He's not swayed by popular opinion. Nor is he living a charmed life. Verse 25, he's not a man dressed in soft clothing. He's one tough hombre. I mean... He said, that's what he's saying. Verse 28, none is greater than John. So, that brings a lot of comfort to me. He's just, what, he's, what we can learn from doubt, what is doubt? You can have strong faith and still, still have doubts, okay? Because in just a few moments, I'm going to expose your doubts. And you might not think you have doubts, but everyone here struggles to a greater or lesser degree with with doubts in their life. Here's the next point on your notes. The opposite of faith is not doubt but unbelief. So the opposite of faith is not doubt but unbelief. Doubt is somewhere in between. So I pointed out to you, verse 29, it reveals belief. When all the people heard this in the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. That's belief. And then you got unbelief happening in verse 30. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by, by him. Yep. Okay, so, so unbelief, unbelief doesn't, mean you don't believe. What? <laughs> just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean that you don't have a belief system. Don't, just because you don't believe in, in Christianity, the Christian beliefs, it doesn't mean that you don't have a belief system. Everybody has a belief system. That's what I'm saying. That unbelief doesn't mean you don't believe. It means that you have an alternate set of beliefs. Here, here's what I find a bit ironic is that people will challenge me about my beliefs and then when I challenge them about their beliefs, what I find out is that they have less evidence and less facts giving validity and veracity to their beliefs than what I do my beliefs and yet there's an inconsistency anytime that you, you require more justification for Christian beliefs than you do for your own alternate set of beliefs. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense to me that people do that, but people do that all the time in our culture and yet I can give you unbelievable evidence giving validity, veracity to the reality of God's word, scriptures, Jesus, what he's done for us. And so there's an inconsistency when people require us to give more validity than what they're willing to do for their own beliefs because everybody has a belief system. Now, like, like unbelief, doubt is also based on an alternate set of beliefs. Now, track with me here. So like unbelief, unbelief is, is based on a set of beliefs because everybody has a belief system. So if you're, rejecting, if you're rejecting Christianity, you have a belief system. You're banking on something. You're betting your life on something. What are you betting your life on? Even atheists are betting their life on something. You have to have a belief system. You, you do. So what kind of evidence do you have? Are, are you willing to, are you pushing in all your chips in on that one? You willing to do that? You are, evidently you are. And so, like unbelief, doubt is also based on an alternate set of beliefs. So when you have doubt in your heart and you don't fully believe all that God has said and you're struggling, that doubt is based on some sort of an alternate belief system. Does that make sense? Okay, I don't, you guys don't look very convincing to me this morning, but hopefully you, you know, you're getting that because I'm gonna... I want to kind of expose your doubts. So, so what you must have to do, what you have to do with those doubts when you struggle with doubt is that you must doubt your doubts. You must doubt your doubts. You must question your doubts. Don't tell me you don't doubt because I know you doubt. Why, why are you so ornery at times? I mean, and I'm saying it nicely. Why are you... Why are you so hard to get along with? Why are you so anxious? Why do you get so stressed out? Why, why are you so worried about your kids? 
Why are you so bitter? Yeah, but you have no idea what I've been through. Yeah, I, I understand that, but, but do you understand who it is that loves you and gave his life for you and is with you never to leave you or forsake you? You're not living in the reality of that because if you did, you wouldn't have as much anxiety and anger and depression that you experience in your life. That's evidence of doubt. There's, it's based on an alternate belief system of some sort. You don't really believe God has your best interest at heart. You don't. Otherwise, let me tell you something. We should be the most courageous, compassionate, contented people on this planet if we really believe what we say we believe. The God of the galaxies came to this earth and rescued us and has given us his very presence. He's conquered sin and death and hell and Satan and all the many benefits that we have. Oh, my goodness. There should not be one ounce of doubt in us, and yet we struggle with doubt. And it's evidenced through our inordinate anxiety and bitterness and, and stress and, and drivenness and, ah, okay, did I convince you? <laughs> You're jacked up just as much as I am. Well, welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. You're in good company. Yeah, we, we need Jesus. All that does is it just makes me say, man, I'm glad I got a rescuer. I'm glad I got Jesus. I'm glad he's in my life. I'm glad it's based not on my performance, but based on his performance. It's based on his grace. Thank you for your grace. It just helps me to appreciate that much more. And so what we've got to do is we've got to doubt our doubts. And uh, this is what it looks like. It looks like this. And Psalms does a good job that this is why I like Psalm 42.5. Listen to the psalmist. Why are you downcast? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall, again, praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you hear what he's doing here? He's doubting his doubts. Why do I struggle? Why do I have turmoil within me? What's going on here? I mean, he's, he's listen. Quit just laying down and taking it. You've got to fight the good fight of faith. I mean, this is what he's showing us here. You've got to recognize that your doubts are based on an alternate belief system, and that's a, not, that's a false belief system. You need to put your faith in Christ. He's got you covered. He's going to take care of you. He loves you. Do you believe that God is for you? Yeah. Start living like it. He's not against you. And so that's, that's the big struggle. That's called sanctification. It's that gap between my beliefs and my behavior. Okay, I understand that. That's what we're all working on. We do that daily. And that's just part of the process of his sanctification in our life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you're working in my life. But you gotta get busy. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? He's talking to himself. Put your hope in God. How many of you have ever had to kind of talk themselves off of the ledge a few times? That's what he's doing. He's about to call it quits. He's about ready to throw in the towel. That's what he's doing here. He says, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Why is, why is that? Because God's faithful. That's what he's saying. He's banking on the fact, I know his word. I know what he's done in my life. Right now, I feel like it's not going so well. But I'm focusing on him. And I'm going to get through this. Listen to what 77, Psalm 77, 7 through 9 says. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at, at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? He's doubting his doubts. He's, he's questioning what's going on inside. He says, hey, wait, 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 this is not consistent. Why am I stressed out? Why am I so worried about my kids? Why am I worried about finances? Why am I worried about this? Wait a minute. I'm a child of the God of the galaxies. He's lavished me with his love. See, this is what he's doing. He's just kind of talking himself off of the ledge here, and he's kind of working through this. Has his love, is his love no longer for me? Is he not for me anymore? I said, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, has he in anger shut up his compassion? These are rhetorical questions. Obviously not. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul. So it's almost kind of like, come on, soul, come on, soul. He's kind of grabbing himself by the shirt collar and going, come on, soul, get with it, dude. You got to do that sometimes. And then he goes through the benefits. He's, he's reciting the benefits. What, these are the benefits that I have. I'm not living like it. I know it. But, man, I need to get there. 
I love what Gary Parker says in his book, The Gift of Doubt. He says, if faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? In my own pilgrimage, if I have to choose between a faith that has stared doubt in the eye and made it blink, or a naive faith that has never known the firing line of faith, I will choose the former every time. Okay, let's move on to that next, uh, uh, next point. Doubt will ask honest questions, but unbelief refuses to hear the answer. So we need to know the difference between doubt and unbelief. So we've seen, so you can have strong faith and still have doubts. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but unbelief. Doubt is somewhere in between. So we need to know the difference between doubt and unbelief. And uh, verses 31 through 34 Did you notice what he's saying here? Did you find this a little bit interesting? He says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. You know what he's describing here? This is an analogy uh, describing to us kids playing in the marketplace. And uh, they're calling out to each other. Hey, we play the flute for you. And so what are they playing? What are the games that they're playing? Anybody? Somebody said Marco Polo last night. It's like, are you reading the same text I'm reading? No, they're playing wedding and funeral. That's what they're playing. That's what they're playing. See, we played the flute for you. You did not dance. Wedding. Let's play wedding. We sang the dirge. You did not weep. Funeral. Do you hear what he's saying there? So it's it's kind of fascinating here. Uh, So what he's saying here in this, now listen, don't miss this. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that this generation is like an easily irritated child in a bad mood that don't want to play. He says, that's this generation. Now, I know that you here at Desert Breeze, because we have perfect kids here at Desert Breeze, and you don't, none of your kids would ever be like this that he's describing, would they? Can anybody relate to that? Now, I hate to, I hate to tell you this, but uh, the Davis kids... Uh, we're kind of like that a little bit when growing up. We have, we've got three kids, and we've got nine grandkids. But, and I really had to break the news to you, too, because our natty girl was the sweetest girl ever. At least she is now. But when she was uh, in her twos and threes, oh, my goodness, what a little midget demon she was. <laughs> a viper in diapers, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and let me tell you something. I mean, you would never know that now. If you knew her and you interacted with her, you'd go, oh, my gosh, she's the sweetest in the world. Yeah. It was, we had to deal with some stuff in her life. And, uh, but when she was like two or three, I mean, if, she, if you didn't have her uh, butter centered in her oatmeal, like it was a no-win situation. I got it centered. You better eat it or you're not going to eat anything. So it was kind of one of those things. Or any time that we decided as a family, hey, let's go out to eat. Let's go grab something to eat. The kids would get into an argument about where we were going to eat. I want to go to McDonald's. I want to go to Burger King. I want to go to Jack in the Box. I want to go. We're not going anywhere. (laughs) That's what mom did. I was like, okay. (laughs) What are we going to do, mom? We're going to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's what we're going to do. Okay, so, so that's what he's describing here. This is what he's describing. This is, this is uh, so he's just saying, this generation is like easily irritated children in a bad mood that don't want to play. I don't like your game. Your game is dumb. I'm not going to play that game. And we've all seen kids do that, and that's exactly what he's describing here. What he's describing here is childishness, not childlikeness. The Bible doesn't condemn childlikeness. In fact, you need to be childlike if you're going to enter the kingdom. Matthew 18 makes that very clear. Childlikeness is really about humility, and it has doubt associated with that. It's really about dependence and vulnerability. To where childishness is about pride and unbelief. That's the distinction that he's making here. And what's interesting, I don't know if you noticed this, but then he goes on to describe, he says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say that he has a demon. So, so John the Baptist came dirge-like, repent, believe, and yet I came throwing a party. Did you notice that? Son of man has come eating and drinking, wedding-like. And here's the point that he's making is that he's, he just, he's basically saying they've rejected both the dirge, John the Baptist, and the dance, Jesus. And no matter what we do, you don't like it. It's a no-win situation because you got a bad attitude. 
That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. You just have copped an attitude. And by the way, that attitude is called unbelief. It's not doubt, it's unbelief. And there's a major difference between doubting. Doubt will ask honest questions. Unbelief refuses to hear the answers. You guys tracking with me? And that's, that's actually really important when you get into arguments with people. I won't waste one second when I realize that this person has unbelief and they just totally refuse to listen to anything that I have to say. It's like I can give them answer after answer after answer. It's like, and so, and so I, I just, ah, okay, I, I've run out of time with you because you're not even open and not even receptive. And so it's, it's the difference between childishness, pride, unbelief, versus childlikeness, humility, and doubt, dependence, and vulnerability. Have you guys, um, have you guys seen that movie that just came out here? And uh, it's, uh, it's called, I haven't even told you what the movie is yet. Uh, sorry. Have you ever seen the movie? Yep, I have. What the heck? Okay, this crowd, this is a good crowd. This is, I like this crowd. You guys are uh, way ahead of me. Here, you guys go ahead and teach this stuff here this morning. Here, go ahead. It's like, you guys, you guys are w- way, way ahead. So the case for Christ, case for Christ. Anybody see the movie? Oh my goodness, you gotta see the movie. What'd you guys think? Is that a good movie? Now, now most Christian movies are really cheesy, okay? They're really cheesy. Would you guys agree with that? Oh, they're, they're horribly cheesy. You go, you just bear th- through it, just get through it. But this one is, uh, uh, this is more like cream cheese, okay? Or like uh, cheesecake or something like that. No, actually, this is really a good movie. It's actually a decent movie. Did you guys go to the, have you guys seen the movie? Anybody? Did you go see the movie? Oh, that's the movie? That I'm, not yet, but you will. I tell you what, you gotta go to the movie. I've always liked Lee Strobel anyway. But in the movie, there's a couple scenes I'm going to share with you, is that atheist Lee Strobel, who's a journalist with Chicago Tribune, it's a true story, based on a true story. So he's a journalist with Chicago Tribune, Uh, he's an atheist, he's got a law degree from Yale, sets out to disprove Christianity. I like his books, I followed his ministry through the years. And, and it's primarily because he was an atheist that set out to disprove Christianity because he was really ticked off royally because his wife became a Christian. He goes, this is crazy. And so he goes out to disprove it. And so he's searching for the facts. He says he's got to follow the facts. So he starts going around the country and finding, and worldwide even at that, and finding all the experts. He comes across one of the experts. It was interesting, the, the dialogue that he had. And one of the experts says to him, because he comes off a little snarky. He comes a little bit more, less with doubt and more with unbelief. And the expert says, do you want, do you want the truth or have you already made up your mind? Boom. He says, yeah, it doesn't sound like you even want the truth. He says, I'm telling you the truth. In other words, he's, he kind of gets in his face and he says, so how much evidence do you need? He says, it sounds like you've already made up your mind. And he kind of sets him back a bit. He starts thinking a little bit more seriously. Do I really, am I really wanting the truth or am I just trying to come up with some strong argument against Christianity and, and no matter what they say, I'm not going to believe it. There's also a scene in the movie where Lee apologizes for writing an article that gets a man falsely accused sending him to prison for 15 years. He goes to prison, he gets the heck beat out of him. He's in uh, the hospital. Lee goes over to him and tells him, man, I'm so sorry, I didn't see it. Because the evidence that he thought he had wasn't the truth, and it got this guy sent up for 15 years. And so Lee apologizes to him, says, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. The falsely accused man said, it's because you weren't looking for the truth. Wow. I mean, it's a little bit like some of my Mormon friends that I've, I, I've had arguments with. It was almost like they would say to me, they wouldn't say this, but you could tell by their attitude, don't confuse me with the facts I've already made up my mind. There's a major difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt will ask honest questions. Unbelief refuses to hear the answers. And you need to know the difference really between the two. Lee Strobel comes to the conclusion that the evidence for Christianity, listen to me, the evidence for Christianity is overwhelming. And he became a Christian as a result of that. He's written a number of volumes, very similar testimony to that of Josh McDowell, who did the same thing, sought out to disprove Christianity. And I would dare, I would dare you, if you're here, you're a seeker, and you're kind of kicking the tires, trying to understand all this, you do the research. I'm telling you, I've done it. It's overwhelming. 
And uh, this is what the Bible tells us, John 3, 19. This is the verdict. This is Jesus talking, by the way. He says, here's, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. Here's the bottom line. Plenty of evidence. It's all around us. Oh, my goodness. Open up your eyes. Look. Plenty of evidence giving validity to our faith. He reveals himself to us through creation, through our conscience, through his, his word, commandments, and ultimately through Jesus Christ. He showed up here. So there's plenty of evidence, plenty of evidence. And so here's the next point on your notes. Faith is coming to God with all of your questions, doubts, and fears. He says something in verse 35 in our text. He says, yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. So he lays out, really, he, he says, go and tell uh, John, what you have seen and what you have heard. So what do you see? What do you hear? You hear and you see the proclamation, demonstration of the gospel. And then he says this. He says something really quite interesting here. He says, as he works through this and we, we go through this whole text, he talks about the attitude of this generation. He says, ah, they, they don't want to know the truth. They're just a bunch of spoiled brat kids throwing throwing temper tantrums and don't even want to hear the truth is really what he's saying. And then he goes on and he says, he says in this, um, he says, yet wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, someone that's really wise, wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. So if they're really seeing from God's perspective, it's going to bear fruit. And that fruit is that they're going to take their faith and faith is coming to God with all of your questions, doubts, and fears. What do you do with your, your doubts? What do you do with your struggles? And this is what he's saying. He said, you're going to bring them to, that's what John the Baptist is doing. See, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's why I love the book of Psalms. I think the book of Psalms really demonstrates that for us. It's, um, there's, a, there's a place in Psalm 139 where, if you ever read Psalm 139, it, it'll send you to the sky, it'll send you to heaven because it just talks about how God is always with us, he loves us, he takes care of us. And then and as you're working through that psalm, it's just like, oh, it's just, you hear the angels singing and you're, you're celebrating and it gets to a place where he says, and uh, his thoughts about us outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. And so you're just like, oh, you're resting in that. And then, and then all of a sudden, it's almost like the psalmist goes off and says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh my God. It's like, what the heck, where'd that come from? Is this guy schizophrenic? Yeah. We all a little bit are. I mean, it's almost like this emotion comes in, it's just, it's almost overwhelming. And then you got like Psalm 137 where it says, blessed is he who dashes your little ones against the rocks. Whoa. Do we have a little bit of anger going on here? Yeah, I would say. But see, this is what's so cool about this. Faith is coming to God with all of your questions, doubts, and fears. You see that in, in Psalms. That's why it says in Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean upon your own understanding. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I mean, don't tell me you're seeking him with all of your heart when you have that resistant attitudes, like no matter what kind of evidence I give you, it's like, I don't believe that. What the heck? You're not seeking God with all of your heart. He says, if you seek him with all of your heart, you're going to find him. That's my challenge for you. Seek him with all of your heart. Oh my goodness, you will find him. You will discover him. You will experience him in ways beyond your wildest dreams. Faith is coming to God with all of your questions, doubts, and fears. Beware of two extremes, though, when it comes to being open and honest here. There's two extremes. There's a religious extreme. There's a liberal extreme. Religious people think of doubt as evil, a total failure, and therefore create churches where people can't be authentic. So if you're ever in a group or in a church that uh, you can't be honest with your questions, doubts, and fears, you start opening up and they almost kind of shame you with that. Get out of the group, okay? Or leave that church or try to bring some change because that's not a safe place. You gotta be able to open up and say, man, I am, I'm shaking to the core of my being. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I'm so confused right now. I need some help. You need to have a safe place where you can do that. I mean, look at, look at John the Baptist. Jesus is saying there's no one greater than him and yet he's going, are you the one? Are you sure you're the one? Because right now, it's not looking so good for me. And uh, so it's, it's pretty fascinating walking through that. So that's one extreme. That's the religious extreme. The, the secular or liberal extreme, you see this in a lot of mainline churches, 
is uh, that these are secular liberal people think of doubt as intellectually sophisticated and emotionally mature and therefore skeptical and cynical about everything. It's like, that's not good either. So there's this balance. You got to do what John the Baptist did. You struggle, bring it to Jesus. Go to Jesus to dispel your doubt. And we, that's why we talked about the, the Gethsemane prayer. Remember Jesus, the Gethsemane prayer? We talked about it last weekend. It's Mark 14, 36. What did Jesus do with his pain? He took it to his daddy. He said there in Mark 14, 36, he said to him, so you look at the Gethsemane prayer, you look at this kind of punch list of three items. He first of all affirmed his daddy's love, wisdom, and power. And he said, Dad, Father, Abba, you can do anything. Take this cup from me. So, he's, so he goes from uh, affirming his love, wisdom, and power. And in that context, and he asks boldly, and then in that, he surrenders completely. He says, but not my will, but your will be done. That's, that's a good way to pray. I'm getting the heck beat out of me, and yet I'm letting you call the shots because I trust your love, wisdom, and power. Does that make sense? That's a lot of faith. But that's what you, got, you need to get to. You need to get to that place. I, I love what Johnny Erickson Tata says in her book, um, When God Weeps. This is good stuff. This is what she says. God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow, Isaiah 54, 5. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman, Isaiah 54, 1. He becomes the father of the orphan, Psalm 10, 14. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person, Isaiah 62, 5. He is the healer to the sick, Exodus 15, 26. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and depressed, Isaiah 9, 6. This is what you do when someone you love is in anguish. You respond to the plea of their heart by giving them your heart. If you are the one at the center of the universe holding it all together, if everything moves, breathes, and has its being in you, you can do no more than give yourself. Acts 17, 28. It's the only answer that ultimately matters. So let me ask you this. Faith is coming to God with all of your questions, doubts, and fears. Do you do that? I, I absolutely loved our unplugged session here this morning. Uh, Josh is going to come up and do another song here in a little bit, but I'm telling you, listen, did you miss that opportunity to connect with the creator of the universe, to connect your heart to his heart? There's something about worship when you worship the God of the galaxies. And by the way, you know this, that through Christ, we have access into the throne room of God. You had opportunity to enter into the throne room of God this morning through those songs, through this opportunity together. There's a dynamic of his presence that's here this morning with other fellow Christians that you can't experience on your own. And you can come in here and bring your doubt and leave with faith. That's the exchange that can take place between you and God. I mean, think about it. You're going to be different if you encounter the, the God of the galaxies. If his presence is here and you encounter him, you know him, you experience him, don't you think it's going to make a difference in your life? Yeah, I think your, your problems are going to get a lot smaller because you're going to see how vast and how big and how great and how glorious and how holy and how majestic and how overwhelming he is. You're going to go, oh, that's nothing compared to who he is and what he's doing in my life. There's going to be a greatness. Oh, and there's going to be a sweetness, and there's going to be a goodness. Oh, I've never been more loved in my life. So you can come in, and you bring your stress, your anxiety, your worry, and you can walk out of here with faith, hope, love, joy, peace. You can walk in with weakness and experience strength. So let me ask you, are you doing that? Do you know how to do that? Do you have that level of intimacy with him? Faith is coming to God with all of your questions, doubts, and fears. So why do we doubt? Let's look, let's look at the root of this. Because this is what really needs to happen is you've got to get down to the root. You've got to find out why. Why do I not have that connection with God that I'd really like to have? Well, doubt certainly probably standing in the way. But uh, here's one, unresolved past hurts. 
So why do we doubt? Unresolved past hurts. And that can come from people. It can come from circumstances, crisis. You can just get the living daylights beat out of you by life. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, Paul says, be angry but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. So anger is secondary to a number of things, but one of the things that it's secondary to would be hurt. You get, you get hurt by life. And he's saying, be angry, but don't sin. Process that stuff. Work through it. Otherwise, you're giving the devil a foothold in your life. In fact, he, he helps us with that even in Hebrews 12, 15. Uh, the writer there says, man, I don't want you to miss out on God's grace. Because if you miss out on God's grace, a bitter root will grow up in your heart, cause trouble, and defile many people in your lives. And so it creates a bitterness. It's really interesting that many of the all-time biggest unbelievers such atheists as Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Bertrand Russell, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, Frederick Nietzsche, and Albert Camus, among others, listen to me, had their father die or abandon them when they were young or had serious conflict with their father. I found interesting in that movie, Lee Strobel's movie, The Case for Christ, is that he also had that father wound. And he began to realize why he struggled so much with the, that idea of the father, father heart of God towards him. Your earthly father certainly helps to shape your concept of your heavenly father. And where there is distrust, doubt is soon to follow. I mean, so unresolved past hurts. It's going to create this, this tension, this doubt that keeps you from experiencing all that God has for you. Here's the next one, unrealistic expectations. Verses 18 through 19, so John the Baptist is struggling with doubt because he has been locked up in prison by Herod and things aren't going so well. In fact, if you're familiar with the story, you can read the story later on today or this week as you're working through the growing notes. Matthew 14 talks about it. You guys are familiar with the story of John the Baptist? He's about ready to lose his head. He's going to be decapitated. I don't know if you've, I haven't, I'm not going to, but you've watched any of the de decapitations by ISIL with some of those Christians. It's horrible. John's going to lose his head here. He knows kind of where he's headed, and it's not very good. And because he's spoken out against, the, against Herod Tetrarch, the Tetrarch, this Herod dude. And so Herod has a big party. His daughter dances. He gets all happy and gives a vow that I'll give you anything. She goes and talks to mom. Mom says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And guess what? Herod's got to do it. He cuts his head off and brings it into the party, head on a platter. And, and so, I mean, you can't help but as you're, as you're walking through this, you know that he's, he knows that he's doomed. And here what could possibly be happening in his heart. I've lived a faithful life. I was the forerunner of Jesus. He's the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, where's your love, wisdom, and power in all of this? But John the Baptist doesn't, doesn't say that. He, and he doesn't say, hey, if you're the one, get me out of prison. He doesn't say that. Because, because that's a utilitarian approach to God. A utilitarian approach to God, seeks God to serve our purposes rather than for us to seek him for his purposes. Luke 23, 39, one of the thieves on the cross said this, are you the Christ? Save yourself and us. In other words, prove you are the one by solving my problem. That's what he's, that's what he's asking. Most people have this utilitarian approach to Jesus. Will Jesus give me the power and support to live the way I want to live? Will Jesus help me succeed in college? Of course I'll come to church regularly because if I can succeed in college because of that, then that's great. Will he help me succeed in marriage? Here's one that I've gotten here at Desert Breeze. Will he support my gay lifestyle? I've had people come up and ask me that. If I come to Jesus, will he make me feel good about myself? Wrong first question. Wrong first question. In fact, I had a, a lesbian couple come up to me and wanted me to dedicate their, their child. Was asking me, will, will you dedicate, 
would you guys embrace this lifestyle? I said, wrong first question. There's a much deeper question here that needs to be asked. John the Baptist asked, are you the one? See, any other question assumes you already know what your life should be all about before you know the author of your life. I mean, how in the world can you assume that you know who you are and what your purpose is before you know, you even know the one who created you and what his purposes are for you? Doesn't make sense. You're, you're putting the cart before the horse. So there's a more fundamental question. Is Jesus Lord? Did he die on the cross? Is he who he said he is? That's the more fundamental question. That's really what John the Baptist is saying here. What John is saying is that if you're the one, then whatever you ask of me will be nothing compared to the glory that'll be mine in knowing you and serving your purposes. That's what he's asking. He knows that. If you're the one, I'm in. And if that means I'm gonna lose my head, I'm gonna do it for you in your glory. That's what he's saying. That's, that's the faith that he's working through. See, the thief's question is not a question. It's an order. It's a threat. See, if you buy into the false teaching that gives you unrealistic expectations and God doesn't deliver on those promises, you will be disappointed, disillusioned, and filled with doubt and probably defect from the faith. By the way, there's a whole lot of false teaching, health and wealth gospel. I hear it coming out of a lot of different charismatic churches. I hear it coming out of seeker churches. There's garbage out there and people buy it. Listen, let me ask you this. Will God ever disappoint you? No. Will he ever let you down? Absolutely not. You let yourself down because you bought the load of whatever that you were taught. I didn't know how quite to say that, but I was trying to be nice. You believed a lie. You stinking believed a lie. You wanted him somehow to adapt your plan for your life because you think you're smarter than him. Your little selfish, self-centered, suffocating plan. That's what the guy on the cross was saying. Hey, get me off this cross. Show me that you're the God of the galaxies. Prove it to me. That's called uh, utilitarianism. It's like, it's, it's not about, you have no idea who you're dealing with. You know who God is? You know, it's It's amazing. There's a, it's called over-realized eschatology. I was raised with a little measure of this, but over-realized eschatology, you guys know what eschatology is? Anybody? It's end times? Yeah. So over-realized eschatology is really the belief that all that we're gonna experience in heaven, we can experience right now here on earth. It's called over-realized eschatology. It's, it's a lot of health and wealth gospel teachers preach that stuff. It just sets people up for failure. Because John the Baptist is going to lose his head, and that's all part of God's divine plan for God's glory. And uh, see, doubt, doubts arise because we have a view of a plan that is not God's plan at all. Listen to me. God is faithful. He's faithful. He loves you more than anyone will ever love you. And he's so much smarter than you I've hung out with you, and you're not that smart, okay? <laughs> and I'm not either, am I? I can't even run my own life. I need him. I need his help. I'm desperate for him. And uh, you're not that smart. I'm not that smart. He's really, really smart. And guess what? He's powerful. And you can trust him and his sovereignty. And when you rest in that, oh, my goodness, there is peace there's joy. You just rest in him. Yeah, you ask boldly. Certainly. God, I, don't, I can't make it through this. Please help me. Take this away from me. And yes, sometimes he does. He brings miraculous healings. I've seen it. I've seen him bring healings. It's amazing. And other times I've seen him heal that person in the midst of that healing. That is, give him the strength that they need to get through the difficulty. So sometimes he'll take us out of the difficulty. Sometimes he'll be right there with us in the difficulty. You've heard me say it before. Sometimes he calms the storm. Sometimes he calms his child in the storm. Either way, you can trust him. You can trust him. He won't let you down. Give him your life. Put him at the center of your life. Oh, my goodness. 
I'm pretty fired up about this one, okay? This, God spoke to me so clearly, and he does quite regularly, but this one was like, I'm preaching to me right now, okay? <laughs> He's got me at the front of the class because I need it the most, okay? You guys know that. Willingness to give up control, that's the next one. Willingness to give up control. See, they kind of go together. Can you give up control? Verses 31 through 35 he basically is just saying, hey, we're like easily irritated children in a bad mood. This is the difference between childishness versus childlikeness. I want to be in charge. It's a power struggle oftentimes. A lot of our doubt is based on a power struggle. There's something on your notes I need to put. I, I forgot to put this down. But add 23, verse 23 on there. Because he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, you're going to feel the offense, but don't take offense Jesus won't be a transforming power in your life until you feel his offensiveness. So you need to feel his offensiveness. His offensiveness is, is basically uh, his claims and the cross. It's that not only can we not save ourselves, you were so sinful, Jesus had to die for you, but once you give your life to him, we must do all that he says, whether we agree with him or not, and accept all that he sends into our life, whether we understand it or not. And I can't do that if I doubt his greatness and goodness. The dirge always precedes the dance. That's what he said. John the Baptist came really with truth. That's the dirge. It always precedes the dance. That's Jesus, grace. See, it's, it's not until you understand your dire condition apart from Christ that the magnitude of his provision is exhilarating. It's captivating. That's the grace of God. But you've got to see your wretchedness and in that as he saves you and rescues you. But that's offensive. So we got a lot of mainline churches, and we got even big churches, probably the biggest church in the nation, says, oh, we don't talk about sin around here. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to be offensive to people. Well, Jesus was very offensive. He said, don't take offense. You got to understand the offensiveness of Jesus. I believe in Jesus who is just a teacher of love. It's almost the Oprah Winfrey kind of approach to, to <laughs> Jesus. Jesus came to say, I love everyone just the way they are. And in their effort to make Jesus inoffensive, they've made nonsense out of history. Because why in the world would anyone want to execute Mr. Rogers? You guys know who Mr. Rogers is? Yeah. You were supposed to laugh a little bit more at that time. But you didn't, so that kind of worries me whether or not you actually... Yeah. It's like he's, he's, he's more than our neighbor. He's... He died on the cross for us because he had to, because we were that sinful. Okay, we're almost done. How do we overcome doubt? If Jesus is the one, then whatever you give up to follow him is nothing compared to what you will gain in him. Verses 22 through 23, he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Really, the physical healings that you see, certainly he does that, is analogous to the spiritual healing that he brings into our life. And he makes that very clear in that text because he actually says he came, the poor have, have the good news preached to them. Here's the bottom line. Everybody look up here. Stay with me. Here's the bottom line. It's not a matter, matter of whether you agree with him or you like his teaching or not. Is he God? Is he God in the flesh? Did he come to die on the cross for you and I? And that he resurrected on the third day, validating not only who he is, but what he came to do. And what was that? He came to set us free to conquer sin and death and give us fullness of life. And it would be of utmost folly, very dumb and devastating, not to live your life for him when you understand that. Here's the next point on your notes. If you reject Jesus, you will try to make something or someone else Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's what he's saying. John doesn't say, are you the one or should we stop looking? He doesn't say that. <laughs> Why? Because we won't stop looking. We won't be able to stop looking. Here, I've got, uh, I was thinking about uh, all the, the top 100 love songs and, and various things like that, and I wanted to share this uh, particular uh, this particular song with you here this morning. I know I can't 
Anybody know that song? Yeah. Who did that song? Harry Nilsson, 1972, remade by Air Supply and Mariah Carey. Okay, let's all sing it here. We can do this. Get your cigarette lighters out. See, you're having a worship experience right now. Oh, yeah. is without you. That's all I can handle right there. Gee. Why would I play that? Everyone, everybody has to live for something. And everyone is saying that about someone or something. Everyone. I can't live if living is without you. And if you don't say that about Jesus... You're going to say that about something or someone else, believe me. You'll say it about your career or marriage or kids or parenting, dream, goal, portfolio, health, wealth, relationship. How do you discover what is it that you're saying that about? Follow the pathway of your fears back into your heart and you'll discover the things you love more than God. We're going to get Josh up here. We're going to do this song. This is a song that's, uh, I think he's back here somewhere. Here he comes. Uh, And I'm going to introduce you to something here. We've got plenty of time here this morning. Don't run out of here. I'm going to introduce to you the uh, the New City Catechism here in just a moment. But Josh is actually going to do a song here, Though He Slay Me. This is Job 13, 15. Job came to terms in his life. He took a beating, and he finally comes to terms with all of that. He says, hey, though you slay me. I will put my hope in you. There's, that's where John the Baptist is. Well, why would anybody say that? Because you're convinced, John 3, 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Because you find your deepest satisfaction in him. There's no one more satisfying than him. Though he slay me, though he slay me. What is God speaking to you? As they, as they lead us in this song, What is God speaking to you through this? And I'm going to come up and I'm going to lead us through at the very end uh, uh, part of this New City Catechism as we end our time together. The basis of this whole teaching series through uh, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 4, it says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The word taught there is catechio, which is where we get the word catechism. Basically, just means the things that you've been trained in. We're introducing this here to our congregation. I'm highly encouraging it and... As I said, we want to be really intentional about raising up our kids, this next generation, with really an understanding of why they believe, what they believe, and what they believe. And it's a, it's a catechism. It's a way of training. Kids ask a lot of questions, and it's an a, a question and answer format, if you're familiar with uh, Westminster Catechism or any of the others that are out there. Uh, but this is a different, kind of a little bit of a different form, format here. But uh, one of the things that I struggle with is the fact that I started the message by saying 80% of our evangelical kids lose their faith in college. A lot of, a lot of kids defect from the faith it's because they don't know. Our kids are being catechized by the world. We need to do a better job at, at helping them to understand the, the, the truths of the Christian faith. And so this is what I would encourage you to do is to, uh, you can get this Amazon under 10 bucks, or you can download the free app. Or go to our website. On our website, the front page, you'll show where you can get the book or download the free app. I've been doing this for my personal devotions, and I love it. There's a richness to this. And I would encourage you to do it for your personal devotions, but also take it a step further. Do it in your family devotions. And what we're going to see here on weekend services, we're going to begin to implement some of this during our worship experience. And so this is how we're going to end here is with the very first of this uh, catechism kind of a question and answer format. Take a look up on the big screen. Um, and I think it goes perfect with what we're talking about. What is our only hope in life and death? 
What is our only hope in life and death? In fact, let's read the answer together. You guys ready? Nice and loud. One, two, three, here we go. That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's really the the conclusion that John the Baptist came to. Are you the one? If you are, I'm in. I give you my life. My life's yours. That's a good place to be. It's based on Romans 14, 7 through 8. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord, Romans 14, 7 through 8. So this is how we're going to conclude. Here's the prayer. And I, keep your eyes open. I'm going to pray this prayer over us as we conclude. Watch. You can look, follow along on the screen. Here's our prayer. Christ, our hope in life and in death, we cast ourselves on your merciful, fatherly care. You love us because we are your own. We have no good apart from you. And we could ask for no greater gift than to belong to you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.